Uh, so that was our children's moment, and now I would invite Casey, to, uh, who, who is our liturgist today, to come and bring the word. Thank you, Casey. Our first reading comes from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Second reading comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered, gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Holy wisdom, holy word. How many of you are familiar with... um... The saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, it's Nietzsche. And I used to feel very cool 
as a teenager quoting Nietzsche. Well, it was the only quote from Nietzsche that I knew, but I would quote it. But you know how things tend to stay with you until you're done with them, until you've figured out what it is you need to learn. Well, this was the case for me with this saying. It would come back to me in the most irritating way until I finally figured out what it is. And that's just this. It's a complete load of hooey. There is nothing worse to say to someone who's suffering that I can think of. So don't say it. Do not, I mean, when we're suffering, we need compassion. Uh, And maybe Hemingway, I think, comes a little bit closer. Uh, The world breaks everyone, he says, in a farewell to arms. And then some become strong at the broken places. The world breaks everyone, you know. So why is it that some of us, when the world breaks us, become bent and some become strong? Uh, We've all seen it. We've seen people give in, give up, turn to the wrong things for comfort, stay stuck, uh, take it out on others. We've done it. We're none of us perfect. So, and, the, and when that happens, it, it never means that it's the end of the story. There's always hope, you know. But how do some of us seem to be able to heal, to recover, bit by bit, from really the truly horrible things that can happen in life? Is it our upbringing? Is it our inherited traits? Our intelligence, emotional or otherwise? Is it, is it in other words, beyond our control? We can't control our family or the environment we grew up in. We, we can't control our gene pool, whether we're dark-skinned or light, whether we're born into poverty or comfort. We can't control the hand we're dealt. But we can control our everyday choices and responses within this life we're given. It's work, but it can be done. And if there's one thing I've learned, and it took me a while to learn this, maybe up until today, it's, it's that our recovery from life's inevitable wounds, and they are inevitable. None of us get out of this without experiencing pain, suffering. Uh, but, no, but our recovery from the hard things life throws at us depends, I think, in large part, to what we let in at the cracks, at the broken places. When we're broken open by life's circumstances, we're very vulnerable. And we can be broken open by joy, too. I'm sure many of you have had that experience of laughing and crying at the same time. We're still broken open. And we, at those moments, it's very, very important what we allow in. Uh, Whether we're broken open by grief or by joy, we are vulnerable. And if, when we're in pain, we let in thoughts destined to make the wound fester, thoughts like sand or grit that maybe say, for example, we deserve it, you know, Uh, or the world is out to get us, or God is punishing us, or that we have a right to take revenge, any number of soul-poisoning thoughts, you know, then we are very less likely to become stronger at the break. Uh, But if, when we're in pain, 
We seek solace and comfort from trusted sources. If we let others care for us, as we're so good at doing in this church, if we're able to still turn toward those things that nurture our soul, then it is as though we're putting a healing balm at the breaking point, as though we are placing a a spiritual bandage over our heart to help it heal and to protect it while it does. And I'm going to talk more about that protection next month. Spiritual protection. So it is when we are at our most vulnerable that it becomes more important than ever to let in only love, only solace, only life and light-giving elements. It is when we are at our most vulnerable that it becomes ever more important to protect ourselves from thoughts, actions, or words that sabotage our healing, whether they come from us or from those well-meaning people around us. How many of you have had had a well-meaning acquaintance say pretty much the exact wrong thing at the exact wrong time? It happens, and, and nobody means anything by it, but it's for the best. Really? I don't, I don't know that. I know just how you feel. Hmm. Not sure you do, really. You'll feel better tomorrow. We can't promise that. And these are some things that we covered in our pastoral care training for those of you who took it. These are the things not to say when someone is suffering. And definitely not Nietzsche. Don't say it. Some of you may be familiar with William Sloan Coffin, who's a wonderful uh, clergyman of the, of the last century. Brilliant. And he lost his, I can't even imagine this, he lost his 24-year-old son in a car accident. And 10 days later, gave his eulogy. And this is one of his most powerful and most often quoted messages. This is a quote from Eulogy for Alex. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies, and I would add, or, or is suffering, never say it is the will of God. Never do we know enough to say that. And he said, my own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die, but that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all our hearts to break. What does God offer us when we are broken? God's heart. And God's heart can surprise, can protect, can definitely help us become stronger at the breaking places. Jesus exploded God's heart into the world and it enabled him to give bread to thousands, to walk across the stormy lake, and ultimately to offer himself to us so that we too could be filled. As so often happens when I'm opening the word, I, I found something new. I noticed something new this time. It's always new, isn't it, when we open the word? But in Mark's version of the loaves and the fishes, which we heard in today's scripture from John, in Mark's version, we, and of course we know Mark is the earliest of the gospels, uh, in chapter 6, verse 30, the text begins this way. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, 
come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. For thousands of years, people on the spiritual path have made a practice of withdrawing, of finding a quiet place where their soul can reconnect with God. And, it, and it's so important that we do this. Uh, and yet it's so hard in our over-busy, noisy world, isn't it? But it's so important. Jesus told his disciples, and we must also come away. And right here in Bellevue, there's a spiritual retreat center, not 10 minutes down the road. Who knew? It's a jewel in the middle of the city. And down near Federal Way, there's the Palisades Retreat Center. There's our own camps. There are places that we can go. We just have to go. I mean, we live in one of the most beautiful places in nature. So peace and a place to reunify our soul with God is abundantly around us, if we but avail ourselves of it. Jesus reminds his disciples of the importance of this, particularly when the crowds are pressing upon them. They might have thought that that would be the time to give and give and give when there is so much need. But no, come away, said Jesus. It's exactly when things start to feel overwhelming that we most need to replenish. And even Jesus needed to retreat, to spend time in solitary prayer, it's there throughout scriptures and even in today's, in today's text. When Jesus realized they were about to force him to be their king, he withdrew to the mountains by himself. And when evening came, his disciples were afraid because he hadn't returned yet. He was still in prayer. But when he emerged from his prayer, from his communion with God, he was strengthened and renewed, filled with God's heart, and ready to offer it again to his disciples, to the 5,000, to us. As many of you know, I'm a bit of a research geek. And so when I'm working on a sermon, it sometimes looks a little bit like this. Hmm, classical art of the loaves and fishes. Oh, Wow, the original church. Come out. Hmm, pilgrimage of Etheria. Oh, stop at Mount Sinai. I wonder if she was recreating the biblical journey. Well, evidence suggests, oh, her relationship with the three monks, persecuted under Valens. And about that time, Martine usually comes in and says, Mom, there's something smoking in the kitchen. <laughs> Oops. But that happens. And my task usually when I'm writing a sermon is to just write it and then cut about 90% of it. I could kind of go on forever. But I did want to share what I found in my research. And some of you may be familiar with the Church of the Multiplication. Kind of hard to say. If you are, I still think it's worth visiting. And so we're just going to spend just a little moment on that today. Uh, First, I just want to put up a map of the region. And there it is. She might have already had that up there. So this is basically, this is Jesus' ministry. This is the place where he did his ministry, this area. Uh, during biblical times, uh, an ancient fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So in about the year 381, 
A woman named Etheria, or Egeria, I'm not sure, depends how you pronounce it, made a religious pilgrimage throughout this region and throughout the region of Egypt, Israel, and Syria. Three years she was on her pilgrimage. So I could say a lot more <laughs> about that pilgrimage. I could say a lot more about Etheria, but I won't. Just going to introduce her today because, because it is her letter to her Christian community back at home that is the earliest recording we have of a church commemorating Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And I just find that fascinating. This is just a little excerpt from her letter. Not far away from there, from Capernaum, are some stone steps where the Lord stood. And in the same place by the sea, it is a grassy field. And we heard in the scripture, it was grassy with plenty of hay and many palm trees. And by these are seven springs, each flowing strongly. And this is the field where the Lord fed the people with the five loaves and two fishes. In fact, the stone on which the Lord placed the bread has now been made into an altar. And here are some pictures of the modern church. The original church uh, is no longer, but they rebuilt it, and they were able to save some of the stones and remnants. Uh, we can go to the next slide, and here's the interior. And we go to the next slide, and this is the altar stone. You know, no, no, who knows if that is the actual stone? But i got to say, it is deeply moving to me to think that just a couple hundred years later, people were building churches and making art, and commemorating Jesus' miracles, and going on pilgrimages. So look under there, and yeah, there is, this is the original uh, tile mosaic. So this is from the 4th century, and it's still there at the church. And then I kept digging a little deeper, and go to the next slide, and some of you may be familiar with this, this is a fresco. This is 200 years earlier now. This is just the 2nd century of the loaves and fishes. This is in the Roman catacombs. Now, am I crazy? Am I the only one who thinks that would be so amazing to visit some of these sites with members of this church? I would love to do that. That would be amazing. And do you see how easy it is to get off of the sermon? (laughs) But this lights me up. (laughs) All right, so. We often think of the Last Supper as the first communion, but isn't the story of the loaves and fishes a story of communion? What else could it be? And Jesus had returned from his prayer time, renewed, and he poured forth God's love to feed 5,000 hungry and tired and weary and worried people. Even the apostles were worried. Even the disciples were worried. Where is Jesus? He isn't back yet. Some of the people, you know some of the people in that crowd were carrying burdens that they couldn't even talk about. Some of them were carrying guilt, regret, heartbreak, loneliness. And what did Jesus do? He fed them. He fed them the grace and goodness of God's love and as revealed through him, the bread of life. And that bread filled their brokenness with love, with love. 
So next week, as you take the bread, we'll have communion next week, and Pastor Brad will be leading. And as you think about all of this, ask yourself, where do you most need Jesus? Where? What secret place in your soul needs healing? Because even our hurt is an invitation from God to let God in at the cracks. Even our anger, our grief, our guilt, even our numbness is an invitation. And if we let God in, if we let ourselves be filled as only God can fill us and receive the grace, the love, the forgiveness, and yes, the communion that the bread of life has for us, then we truly will grow stronger at the break. Will you pray with me? Lord, we know we're not perfect. And it is through the mystery of faith that you use even our imperfections to heal the world. So let it be, and let us open ourselves to you, that you may do so through us. All this in Christ's name. Amen.